When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to another episode of the Beer Ladies Podcast. I am Lisa and I am your host this week. Hello! And I am joined by Christina, Tandy, and Bean. Now, before we get into our topic for the day, I'm going to encourage everyone and thank everyone to continue to you know, like, subscribe, share on all the socials, on the YouTubes, uh, on all your favorite podcast apps. We are either at Beer Ladies Pod or at Beer Ladies Podcast. And we really appreciate you guys doing all the liking and sharing and subscribing. It really does help. So thank you very much. So before we talk about the episode subject to be revealed, we'll do a what are you drinking? And I'm going to cheat a little. I'm going to start with Christina because I, I know she's she's off her drink tonight, but she does have a good substitute. So over to you, Christina. So I did a DIY pumpkin spice cappuccino for fall reasons, which is basically just um, adding mixed spice. And then I got um, like a non-dairy creamer. It's vanilla caramel. So I mixed that with like the mixed, like the warming spices, like the, the cloves and all that stuff. And I dumped that in and then I have um, a decaf cappuccino mix because it's you know eight o'clock at night. And um, well, I don't drink caffeine anyway. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> But yeah, I mix them all together. And so I have my 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 DIY um, cappuccino, pumpkin spice cappuccino. Wonderful. Excellent. Tandy, mm. over to you. What, what have you got? Oh, um, I have got an Atlantic 353. It's a West Coast IPA from Curious Society. So that's those, uh, those lads who work at, uh, I think it's the offshoot of Larkins. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, the, it's my first time trying it. It's uh, so far so good. It's it's. It's lovely. I haven't had a good West Coast IPA for a while, I think. Nice. Wonderful. Yeah. And how about yourself, Bean? Ooh. Well, this is the most archaeological thing that I could find. It's the Millhouse <laughs> IPA from Bellicill Kevin. Wonderful. And it's wonderful. a nice, nice uh, golden color. Excellent. Oh, very nice. And I have a hope hop on. Uh, again, nothing uh, especially historical or archaeological about it. Uh, hint, hint, again. But it is a session IPA, and so it is perfect for recording on a school night. So wonderful to have and always enjoy a little something from Hope. So a couple little hints there. We are diving back into the mists of time again, and we are talking today about Sumerian beer, or maybe more broadly kind of Mesopotamian beer, all that early stuff. We're, we're going to sort of, you know, get into the, the beer bread thing, and, and it is a thing. But we thought it'd be fun to do a historical. It's been a little while since we've done one that was a pure historical. So we'll kind of open the floor. And Christina, we'll start with you because we're going we're gonna to be lazy and cheat and use a lot of our previous publications. But there's nothing wrong with that. It's good. So Christina, over to you. Yeah, I gave myself permission to, to use it. So it's perfectly acceptable for me to plagiarize myself. So that's Absolutely. what we're, we're going to do a bit of that. So um, if you follow me on Twitter over the summer... I made a Sumerian ale 
Um, so I'm going to kind of start about with sort of defining what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Sumerian culture for those of you who might not be familiar, and then we can kind of jump off from there. And then Lisa and I can argue about uh, what the beer <laughs> bread is. Um, <laughs> so let's start out with sort of defining what, what is Sumerian culture? What am I, what am I talking about? What are we talking about? So Sumerian culture, it's, it's from Mesopotamia. And this is a very ancient culture. We're talking like, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago and um, a very important culture. So it, we see social stratification. It has big cities. It has starts out with proto cuneiform, which is a form of writing It eventually becomes cuneiform, which is which is the writing that you can kind of see in the tablets um, that we will tweet out and talk about the, after this uh, p- this podcast has come out. And they also used a wide variety of tools. It was a very complex civilization with centralized governments. It had very powerful cities like Uma, Ur, and Girsu. Um, and these were city-states, basically, that had control over the local area. They were ruled by local rulers, um, eventually uh, secular kings, who could possibly control up to multiple city- of these city-states. Um, these cities were dedicated to a patron deity and characterized by a central ziggurat or temple complex. And these city-states absolutely went to war with each other and other cultures. So an important part of this civilization was administration. It was a really important part of the culture. And from this administration, we see, we can see in the cuneiform documents surrounding the administration of these city-states, the importance and presence of beer in the culture. So... I did an exploration, I fell down a rabbit hole this summer, of about 155 different cuneiform tablets that mentioned or talked about beer or ale in Samaria. Um, And this came from a range of periods. So the exact dates are a bit contentious around scholars. So I'm going to give you some general ranges. So for example, I have tablet tablets within my sample size came from the early dynastic period, which was 2900 to 2350 BCE to R3, which was circa 2112 to 2004 BCE. And then we're always still going to the Akkadian Empire, so circa 2334 to 2218 BCE, and Old Babylonian period, the end of the R3 um, to about 1600 BCE. And so these also come from a range of city-states that I talked about before, like Girsu and Uma. And um, I will try to flag when I'm talking about the tablets, which ones I'm talking about, where they come from. So you can kind of put it within within its context. But that just kind of gives you sort of a background of what Sumerian culture is and sort of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, And then we can kind of talk about, I guess, some of the tablets that I found and some tablets that Lisa has studied and and uh, yeah, and kind of dig into that. So um, I guess we can. I might as well just, I'll throw one out first. Throw one out. I'll throw it out. Um, so what we see a lot, what the administrative documents, um, they involve allocations or rations or payments for various amounts of food items, including beer. So there's one that's actually at the Met. And there's, I really highly recommend looking at these at the Met. They're, they're fascinating. They're also um, open source. So you can use them and, or public domain, I should say, and you can use them and look at them. It's, it's wonderful. So, in one of these, there are rations for, for messengers. And one, the one that I'm going to talk about right now is from the reign of Ibi Sin, specifically dated to month two, day 20 of the year 2028 BCE. And it regards the, the rations of ale, oil, bread, and onions for these messengers. And I think it's just really cool to look at these, to sit down and just have a gander. I have this on my website and I'll tweet about it. Um, I think another really important one, and and then we can kind of jump on to the role of women, I think probably from this um, as well. Uh, I have one of these from Girsu and the Earth 3 period. And this one talks about female laborers and their work carrying ale from the start at the brewery to various secondary locations like a boat or new palace. And then there's a couple of these that talk about female laborers, beer pouring, and those sorts of things. So I think it's really interesting that we can highlight the role of women within Sumerian beer culture. And I'm going to check that over to you now, Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) Well, exactly. It's, it's, you know, we definitely have this evidence. Again, we have proper written evidence as well as bits and pieces we know beyond that from the archaeology that 
women were the primary brewers, were the tavern keepers. And this is over, you know, really a really broad expanse of time, you know, like you were saying, you know, these are big ranges. I mean, and then, you know, we have kind of, um, we always have the Himton and Kazi, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But, you know, you can see that that's really central role that the women had where, you know, they are, they are the ones doing this. They're the ones, you know, doing, you know, all this sort of heavy labor, frankly, but, um, you know, we have, we have the Code of Hammurabi, which is 1700-ish BCE thereabouts, but it is very clear that the, the women who are uh, producing uh, either bad beer or who are cheating their customers will be thrown in the river. So, you know, when you have to make a law about something, it's either happening a lot or you're freaked out that it's going to happen. So there's something here where they're, you know, and you see this again and again, that you're always worried that the people who are producing the thing are somehow cheating you. So it's it's really making sure that there's this sort of, um, you know, you've kind of got this in your your social code, if you like, but it's it's fascinating that they, again, they have to sort of codify the, the behavior around the brewing, who's doing it, what happens to them. But, you know, again, women are absolutely central to this, um, you know, not, not only from a sort of labor perspective, but in in the folklore of the culture and the folk life of the culture. So, you know, in, in the Himton and Kazi, people will say, oh, it's the oldest beer recipe, which kind of, I mean, you know, it tells you some stuff about how it was made. And I think that that actually is a really interesting piece too, where there, there's, and, and some of the translations too are, are great words, but like, it'll make your liver happy. It's like, well, maybe, you know, how, how much of it are you having? I think there's a, you know, they don't quite answer that question, but, um, you know, and, and you see that, you know, even now you have, you know, Ninkazi Brewery in, in Eugene, Oregon, who try to, you know, kind of, um, you know, celebrate her uh, memory of the goddess Ninkazi, but it, it's also interesting that we don't quite know, though, at the same time, like what other role these kind of deities played in the society. You know, we, we get the bits and pieces we can read about, but uh, and, and we can see some you know representations of some of them in some cases. But it's not 100 percent clear at the same time, like like are people sort of doing this because it's a sort of very serious, you know, kind of thing? Or is it is it a bit of fun and serious? Is, is it kind of all different things? We, we don't really have a good idea about it. But but again, because we have so much uh, written evidence, again, from the cuneiform tablets, like, we can read a lot of things and compare and contrast and be like, there's more than one point of view. Although, again, it's very administrative. Like, I think we cannot overemphasize how administrative most of the cuneiform tablets we have, or at least that we have translated are. Like, the Hymnon and Kazi is, you know, kind of one of this other subset of things that are not purely like three oxen, and then we had lunch, you, you know, but, you know, which is fantastic in its own way, but it's, it's interesting that you have the a very sort of staid, very again kind of um, oh, what's a good word for it? Very staid, very uh, sort of systematized set of writing. But then you have this other stuff that kind of just goes off, which is great. But it's all about beer and who gets how much, who makes it, and what are the rules around it. So I know I just had a lot of very vague things about it, but there's it's fascinating stuff. And the the other fun thing about some of these cuneiform tablets is they look like delicious biscuits if you get a little bowl of them. So there are some great pictures on Twitter and Instagram of uh, various museum collections that just look adorable. And you can bake your own at home. So is um are these artifacts the first known or, or the, the earliest known recipes, sightings, speakings of beer? that we know of? It depends. <laughs> it's probably like, like all of these things, it depends. I mean, it's, it's certainly in terms of something that sounds kind of like a recipe, or at least like would give you some ingredients, I would say probably, but uh, it's always, there's a lot of interesting stuff that gets excavated in China and doesn't get uh, written up and translated into English. So we know that there's a very, very deep, prehistory and history uh, in, in Asia of basically brewing things that start off a lot like mead and then are a lot like wine and are a lot like beer. It's entirely possible. There are some things written down very early that just haven't made it in English translations or publications. So, you know, I, th I think when in it, whenever you go into any kind of archeological setting, you're always like, but more research is needed. So we have what we have, but there's probably something else out there. And I think the other thing too, is the dates get shifted earlier and earlier as we find out just more about, uh, you know, where people are doing these things. And I think the, the other interesting thing too, is, and I know we've talked about this a little bit on some other episodes is 
unless you know what you're looking for, you don't necessarily know what you're seeing and how to interpret it. So especially things like molting, you know, unless you know what that looks like, really, unless you've done any kind of molting, you may see a site and say, oh, this might have been an oven or, oh, this might have been, you know, something that burned down. It could have been where they were malting barley or, you know, other grains. But unless you know what that looks like, you don't know how to interpret it. So there's probably a lot of other early malting sites that we just haven't, you know, that were either dug in the 19th century and people didn't know or that just people haven't gotten around to looking at yet. So it, I feel like I feel like it shifts by like 2000 years each time it gets a little earlier <laughs> and a little earlier and a little earlier but uh, you know it, it's a good PhD for someone either which way beer is like fundamental to human civilization absolutely. And, uh, and it's absolutely central to its history right to all of us <laughs> exactly yeah and and I just want to add before we move on from goddesses that Nankasi isn't the only goddess or god associated right. with beer and Sumerian culture, so she's probably the most famous to our modern ears, but there's there are plenty of other ones, so we can talk about Inanna um and her yeah. descent into the underworld, which dates from the old Babylonian period. She rewards a fly for helping her find her 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 man, as it were, mm-hmm. um, with many things, um, including allowing them or the fly to be in the beer house and and have thing lovely things happen to them. Um, in another in another in a prayer, actually, we we have the quote. I shall release my tears like sweet beer for holy Inanna. I shall say to you, give your legal decision. So there, there is sort of this association of, of beer and, and beer for the goddess um, within this culture and within these texts. And we also see God's brewing. So for example, the Sumerian god Enki is shown mixing date syrup in his ale to make it stronger. So that also tells us that um, they probably drank or had access to some alcoholic um, ales. It wasn't just, you know, 0.05% or 0.1% or, you know, these weren't necessarily low ABV. And we see that throughout there. There's definitely, you know, conversations about intoxication and being intoxicated and things like that. So the the, the ale that they're drinking, maybe not all of it, but certainly some of it was intoxicating uh, to the point of being able to be drunk. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and then when you get into the, the other stuff, like certainly when you get into the Epic of Gilgamesh, they, they are drunk all the time. Like mm-hmm. this, this is not just like they had a little, you know, a few drinks, you know, with dinner. No, they are, they are pushing the boat out. So it's, uh, you know, it's something to kind of, uh, you know, I, I think, I think what we can't really see at this remove is they must be using, again, must maybe, you know, again, I'm pushing my own biases, but they're probably using different, you know, different recipes, different strengths, you know, for different reasons. Maybe something is kind of their table beer. Maybe something else is for celebration. You know, again, we only see the bits we can see, but I think you have to assume there's, you know, different, you know, essentially different styles for different occasions. Yeah. And, and, and the, the story, and I'll get into that when I talk about why I made my ale, how I made it. But um, there's there's def- there's like insults involving drunkenness. So for example, I'll read you a quote. Um, after you go to the house of a man giving a drinking party for a god, after you enter behind the man of the drinking party, beer foam is to be spattered upon you. After you set your neck upon the ground, which means you bow down, your own self, which is so drunk, does not even know how to use a hand. So, you know, we have, we have this idea um, and then, and that's sort of perhaps a negative, but we also see it like happily in drinking songs. So another quote, I will have the cupbearers, the boys and the brewers stand by as I spin around the lake of drinks while feeling wonderful, feeling wonderful while drinking beer in a blissful mood, while drinking alcohol and feeling exhilarated. My stomach is a heart stomach with joy. I clothe my contented liver in a garment fit for a queen. Which sounds kind of wonderful, doesn't it? Really, We've just all been there. Yeah, it really just sounds like a good time. And I even found evidence for a for a beer festival. So, Ooh. you know, of course, that didn't have to be alcoholic. You know, you don't have to have alcohol in your beer to enjoy it. But I mean, possibly, you know, a nice beer festival. Um, yeah. So I, I just thought that was a bit of fun and really interesting. And the way they talk about beer and alcohol and being drunks, you know, sometimes it can be negative, but sometimes it just sounds wonderful. Like just, you know, an ode to, to drunkenness or to tipsiness or to intoxication and, and how kind of lovely it can be. 
and this would be a very communal activity too, at least the, the bits that we think about, which again can kind of veer off because archaeology into ritual, but also they may have just done this of an evening or for, like you said, it could have been like a festival because they're drinking with these straws because we're not talking about, you know, like a, a sort of clear, you know, kind of, um, you know, beautiful golden or, or amber liquid. Like we're probably talking about something kind of dark and kind of gritty, you know, the mouth feels not what we're looking for or, you know, not what we would expect. But Christina, you're the expert because you tried brewing this. And uh, I don't know if you used the straws. I can't remember, but uh, how I did didn't. it go? I should probably just talk about mine because th- then we can it. kind of launch into things. Yeah. So, so I made this beer uh, mostly because I was bored and I fell down a rabbit hole and I was like, hey, you know what I hate doing when I brew beer? Cleaning. So I'm just going to make ancient beers less cleaning. Um, <laughs> not to say there isn't some cleaning, but you know, not not the level of um, sterilization perhaps that, that it would be. So basically I found a loophole. So anyway, I started with the Sumerian ale. And um, the first process, part of the process is making this bapper, which is often translated to a kind of beer bread. Now, this is probably the most highly contested part of the brewing process for Sumerian culture um, and indeed even Egyptian culture. So this really, really controversial and contested. So we're going to go with what the reason why I chose to make it the way I did. And I'm going to explain and justify myself. So Peter Damro argued that bapper was quote, registered instead using capacity measures just as coarse ground barley. So instead of being registered like as a loaf or like as bread, it's measured using the same measurements as barley, coarse ground barley. And further, he found evidence that it was referred to as crushed, so crushed bapper. And I mean, of course, if we look at a loaf of bread, uh, crushing it is a little, it's not, we pull it apart, we do something like that, maybe if it's stale, it's not necessarily something that we would, words that we put together with bread as we can conceive of it in our modern mind. So this led me to conclude that bapper was not maybe a type of bread, but more like a cracker, a kind of cracker. Um, And with this knowledge in mind, I, so I had made a couple years ago, a malt tonic. And part of my malt tonic was making um, this sort of malt cookie, a malt cracker. And so I followed that recipe. So that was from a patent from 1888 by Moses Kluber. And so I followed that to make my bapper. So I mixed my malts um, and I used wheat and barley. Um, wheat in particular, emmer wheat is mentioned repeatedly on the different kinds of ale. Lots of times, lots of times. Well, file uh, that away. That's going to be important later. I think uh, we'll get back to that. Yeah. So I blended the wheat and barley malts with water and I just let that sit overnight. So the next day, the barley had absorbed much of the water and it was pliable. It's like a kind of a dough, to be honest. And to this, I added saffron and coriander because, for example, in the Hampton and Kasi, and also just we know in Sumerian culture, there were many herbs and spices and things available. So I added those things to kind of bump it up a bit. And then again, I followed Kluber's recipe. And again, this is on my website. So I smashed it down into two cookie baking sheets and I baked it till it was hard and brown. Um, So I made them low and slow. And then I got beer crackers, <laughs> which honestly, they're really nice to just eat. Like they're, 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 they're nice tasting. Like they're not bad, but like Dame Rose suggested, they can be broken up. They can be crushed. They can be measured like coarse grain barley because they're cooked and then they can go back into tiny little bits. So that seems to me to line up more with what this might be. And um, other scholars have contended very similar things, although perhaps different processes, but basically more of a cracker type thing than a bread. So I'm going to jump now to Lisa because I'm sure she has thoughts on this. So I have thoughts on this, but they're, they're good thoughts because I think, you know, certainly from a yeast perspective, obviously yeast is magic at this point, you know, you're, you're not sort of cultivating it. You may, you may, if you're having, you know, if you are kind of, if you do have the equivalent essentially of like a sourdough mother, maybe you've got that sort of squirreled away, but if this is kind of your everyday bake and stuff, I bet you're not waiting for anything to rise because you don't know if it'll happen. So I feel like a cracker makes a lot of sense just from a sort of environmental perspective. Um, and again, I think that's the other interesting thing about this is we don't, you know, we don't know how they would have perceived that part of the process. Like the whole sort of yeast fermentation part is, again, it's it, it's magical, it, but 
I will circle back to the Emer Wheat in a minute, but I want to let other people speak first. So, so hang on. <laughs> if we were going to, if we were going to think about crackers as a way of um, almost preserving yeast, wouldn't the yeast have been killed off when it was heated and, and cooked? Or does the yeast come later? This is I, oh, so, I, so this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box, and if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So, so that was what I was going to suggest, process. actually, was that yeah. potentially afterwards. So, so maybe it was added to other grains and it replaced a roasting, like a roasted malt as opposed to um, just malted barley. Yeah. Make- yeah, you use bapper in addition to other grains. So you're not ah. just using bapper. Um, you're using bapper and then again, barley and then again, wheat. So bapper is just mm-hmm. part of the brew. But um, Marin Dinley did a really interesting experiment and she talks about how you can get sacrification through creation of bapper. So you're getting kind of the release of those sugars in that way. So it might have been used to aid in that perspective. Um, so that's kind of where I viewed it coming from. Um, mm. And then, you, you know, you the yeast to me was naturally occurring, although I added some and I'll explain yeah. my process through that and why I, I did that. But uh, yeah, so that's where I was coming from with that. And I really, really highly recommend reading Marin's experiments with this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to call out if, if for those who don't know Marin Dinley, she's an archaeologist and she's been a home brewer forever. So she understands what she's looking for, which again, Many researchers do not know what these things might be or, or could be, you know, so I think her research is fantastic. She, and she's a lovely person, always a pleasure. So seek out her work. Good stuff. Absolutely. And we'll definitely make sure to cite that and everything. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And so that's the thing. So now I'm, now I'm at the mashing point, right? So that's where I'm at. And I decided that I didn't want to use a low ABV because as I said, there seems to be definitely evidence of higher alcoholic beverages and, yeah, it just seemed like a bit of fun to make more of it, to aim for like a higher ABV, which means I needed a hot mash um, because you just cannot get the sacrification with a cold mash. So I used a hot mash and I went in about 67 degrees for 1.5 hours, but I really didn't monitor the temperature because uh, I wanted to make the least use of modern tools as possible. And I went with about 50% bapper, 25% weed, 25% barley blend. 
And I also added the dates and I covered it with much more water than a modern brew, about 2.5 times the amount, uh, because I'm not going to be sparging. So because of that, I added more water initially. So I added the dates because we saw, um, we talked about date ale and that's very common. And then after the mashing was complete, I mixed in an entire bottle of date syrup. You've got all the fermentable sugars in there. So I was going for, as I said, I was going for boozy. Um, and Anki's talks about mixing date syrup and the ale to make it stronger. So I figured, you know, in for a penny and for a pound, I was going to make Enki's ale and it was going to be strong. Um, and then I added more coriander and saffron and again, no sparging and there would be no boil either. So we just went straight into the fermentation. And then the question is to filter or not to filter. So I looked at the Hinton and Kasi, which I'm not entirely sure is a recipe as such, if not more perhaps written by someone who has some idea of the brewing process, but perhaps not the steps in the right order. Yeah, um, so that's how I approach it as there, there are things that are happening in the brewing process, but they're not necessarily in the order. That being said, um, there is a reference to, to fermentation and to filtering. So I'm going to read the quote. Ninkasi, you place the fermenting vat, which makes the pleasant sound appropriately on top of a large collector vat. It is you who pour out the filtered beer of the collector vat. It is like the onrush of the Tigris and the Euphrates. So this to me sounded like the beer is filtered in the collector vat after fermentation. So that's what I decided to do with this particular brew in any event. And I also decided to try to ferment the ale on grain, at least partially. So I used a two to three inch layer of grain at the bottom of my fermentation jug. And again, this was, I heard about um, fermenting on grain in part with a conversation of Marin Dinley um, and another gentleman who I've uh, cited in there and uh, in my, in my blog, I should say. And so again, Marion has made several, several Sumerian ales and I, I highly recommend that. So I fermented on grain and then I decided to let my wort cool naturally and slowly. And I knew that this was going to expose it to bacteria and natural yeasts. And that was the end game in any way to preserve some sort of historical accuracy. Cause of course there's no chillers, no, <laughs> no quick cooling systems. And um, so, but I did decide to pitch a yeast as well, just to go for it, just to kind of speed along the process. And I went with Kabike. And why did I do that? So there are references to sweetened beer being exposed to a lot of sunlight and sweetened beer exposed to a little sunlight. Um, And this was mentioned several times. Um, Also an ale exposed to narrow sunlight and exposed to double sunlight. So the fermentation jugs are opaque. So this sounded like it could be a reference to increasing fermentation temperatures, something which would affect a yeast like Kvike. So I use that. Um, and I decided to test the sunlight use. So I wrapped my jug in, like, I had a black metal man hoodie. So, like, I just wrapped <laughs> the black metal man hoodie around it and I shoved it into the sunlight. And I just kind of left it to ferment for a week, like, not knowing what was going to happen, thinking it was probably going to be terrible. Um, and I, so I've decided to call this, like, Anki's Ale. And so that, that is my brewing process. And, uh, yeah, does anyone have any questions before I talk about the results? Does it Which, end up? Oh, go yeah, ahead, Dean. Yeah. yeah, you've been quiet. Go ahead. You, just about the coriander. Is that the seeds? Did you crush them up? Yeah, yeah. Use the seeds. Yeah, use the seeds. Not the, not the. Uh, the sorry, American in me. You know, cilantro is cilantro the, seeds. Is, yeah, and cilantro is the leaf, and coriander is the uh, the seed. So yeah, coriander seeds. I should have. Been Did you like there. squish them up? And, and yeah, I had crushed, them. I had crushed ones and then I added to the saffron and I mixed it all up and then I checked it in and I can highly recommend adding uh, coriander too. It's really nice. It was very nice, nice addition in a beer. Mm-hmm. And the wheat and, and emer and, and stuff, was that all kind of, kind of smashed and squished and blended up too? Well, yeah. So I didn't actually have emer wheat though. If I do this again, I'd oh, like oh. to have access to it, but um yeah, it was far. I didn't source it. I couldn't, I couldn't source it, which um, I'm sure I'll find it next time around. I'm sure it'll be easy to find this time, but I couldn't find it last time, which oh, I'm sure it was right in front of my face, but in any event. Um, so yeah, I had crushed, I had the, the grains crushed already. Um, 
there are references. I think I was reading someone's experiment talked about wheat berries. So uncrushed wheat. So I did use some mm-hmm. uncrushed wheat, um, in, in, not in the backer, but in the, when I was making, when I was mashing in as well, um, just to try to cover all my bases historically. Uh, so yeah. Cool. So it mostly wasn't flour. It was pieces of yeah yeah none of it's really flour so right, if, it, okay. if, if it is crushed it's just t- sort of crushed it's still definitely you can kind of still see the grain it's just squished a bit <laughs> yeah so you like put it in a mortar and pestle or a blender or, or yeah something. It, so it wasn't flour and it wasn't necessarily except for a few the whole berries of the grain so it was like yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. And you can, you can order it. So I just ordered it crushed. You can, you can just order that from your homebrew store already crushed. Cool. Thanks. Mm-hmm. You're kidding me. I just want to know what it tasted like now. Okay. <laughs> okay. I seem to remember boozy was the main yeah. <laughs> yeah, adjective, but <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So like, listen, I was expecting this to be kind of awful because I have read other people's experiments and most people's experiments are like, Ugh. It's 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 sour. It's not nice. I don't like mm. it. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'll I'll be JCP for you. <laughs> um. So the aroma that no the initial nose was sweet and malty. So a lot of dark fruit basically. Um. Which was shockingly probably from the dates. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> that much dates and date syrup in there. But I didn't really get anything sour, which I was surprised. I did yeah. think I was going to get a little bit of tartness or something in there from the bacteria, but I didn't get that. There was a hint of a bready malt character, though. And it was it was a tawny color. I think that was the best way I could describe it, like a rich, a cloudy, rich brown color um, it was not, you know, it wasn't filtered. So, of course, it's really, really cloudy and it's opaque. And again, we can probably thank the date syrup for that. Uh, low carbonation, but there was something there, um, and a very full mouthfeel with a bit of alcohol warmth on the finish. So it was definitely boozy, which is what you kind of expect with Clyke and the theory of the sunlight and the creature fermentation temperature. So overall, the flavor was really, really heavy in the dark fruit, which, you know, shock horror. Where did that come from? All the dates, um, with a bit of bready malt, there was some tartness. There was absolutely some tartness in there, but it really balanced out the sweetness of the dates. To be honest with you, I liked it. There was some diacetyl slickness on the palate, which I didn't really mind because I thought it went okay with the sweetness of the dates and a bit of the tartness. So the little bit of slickness didn't really bother me. Um, and it was a very, very dry finish with some alcohol warmth. So I would, I, I said, and I will stand by what I said, that it reminded me sort of a cross between an Eau Bruin and a barley wine. That's sort of kind of like the best that I can kind of say. And I really liked this beer. I would make this beer again. It was good. Like it really like, was it necessarily the most historically accurate of historically accurate brews? No, because I didn't have, you know, the right jugs and I wasn't, you know, sticking them outside in the sun. But it was a really fun experiment to do. I'm really happy I did it. I hope to brew an Egyptian ale next and just kind of or um, an early medieval English ale. You know, I have a lot of ideas now. This was a lot of fun and I want to kind of keep going with these. But um, overall, it was a it was a fun experiment. I found a Sumerian dinner dish to make. And so, you Hmm. know, that was that required beer. So that was kind of fun to make with my beer and then add it to the to the dish. And I. It was a nice dish. Um, so, so yeah, just, it was just a really fun project. Just a bit of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for anyone who wants to kind of try it at home, uh, one, go to your blog because there's plenty there, but, um, I, I think there is that balance between how do you make it work for a modern palate versus, you know, obviously you don't want it super sour necessarily, although some people go for that, but, uh, uh, Dr. Pat from the Penn Museum, uh, Pat McGovern, he has a bunch of wonderful books called, uh, the, the one I think that's maybe the most accessible to a general audience is called Uncorking the Past, The Quest for Wine, Beer, and Other Alcoholic Beverages, but he's got a, a bunch of others, and I'm wearing a wearing an old dogfish head uh, t-shirt today because he does, he works with them on the Ancient Ales series where they do look at all the archaeology properly, they do that kind of um, biochemical analysis to say, what went into this? You know, obviously you can't necessarily get proportions, but they can at least, you know, get a pretty good sense, figure out all kinds of things. And they've even gone and collected, you know, 
what I'm putting in air quotes, ancient Egyptian yeast. Uh, I think that experiment actually didn't turn out particularly well, but the ones that have become commercial beers for them are based on, you know, sort of ancient Chinese beer, uh, ancient Greek beer, um, as, as well as several others. Um, there's an ancient Mesoamerican one, which is Theobroma, one of my favorites. It's so, so, so good. But, you know, they have the the, the time and money to you know, use the what you know what you can tell from the archaeology, but then refine it for the modern palate, so you can sell it to people and, and first of all, not make them sick, but also so it tastes accessible and, and good. And again, the Theobroma is one of my favorite because it's made with chocolate and it's it's so good. But that's much, much, much later. We're talking about much, much earlier at this point. But uh, but again, I love that people are out there doing the work and uh, seeing you know seeing what's good. And, and I, I'm going to circle back to the, the Emmer wheat because by the time this drops, I think we're allowed to say that the, the, the Hope ooh, winter seasonal is going to be a stout made with Emmer wheat. Uh, and they are working with some archaeologists from University College Dublin to kind of um, find out more about what the brewing process was like in kind of early medieval Ireland what you know, how people were growing is specifically emmer and some other ancient grains and how they were malting. And again, this is later from, you know, much, much, much later, obviously from the Sumerian thing, but I think it's fantastic that people in Ireland are doing this kind of work. And uh, I got to sample that beer. It's a stout. It's, it's again, made with the, the emmer wheat. It's gorgeous. So little side plug, go and uh, go and get that. But I, I, again, I'm just really excited that people are doing this kind of work and you can actually go out to, I'm just looking up where, uh, Cornstown, uh, Cornstown House, which is where they're growing this, and they have alpaca trekking as well. So, alpacas. Oh, wrong. sold, 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 sold. I'd never heard of Emma wheat actually. Um, so that's really There's interesting. A, it doesn't have a hull, if I'm recalling correctly, because it's it's definitely an older. You know, uh, it, well, it, the whole when we get into kind of any kind of uh, domestication of grains, it's super complicated, but. Uh, I think that's the one of the big differences with Emmer is it doesn't have a hole, but I, I could be completely wrong about that. I don't know if being your Yeah, and I, I didn't actually look anything up, but the thing about <laughs> old it. old grains is they haven't been bred for yield yet. Right. So it's usually not very cost effective for a farmer to plant a whole field of an yeah. older type grain because it won't have like six rows of great big um kernels in, you know, every stalk of grass at the top yeah so it you know it's it's a bit more expensive and and all that so that's I mean you guys know that but that's uh, but you don't yeah. see it so often um but Christina did that last a few days in uh, after you had brewed it all right or did you ever find out because you put it in some cooking or did it I yeah I didn't really I used it within like three days I was not trying to keep it for long I didn't think it was going to keep very long mm -hmm. I put it in the fridge um almost immediately so basically I tasted it I left put the leftovers in the fridge and then I used what I was going to use and then drank the rest um I did didn't think it was going to last that long now it might do um but I just didn't I mean it is it was a higher alcohol so it probably could have hung out for a while um but yeah I just I was ready to just, I didn't make a lot of it, to be honest with you. I really, really maybe made a gallon, maybe, maybe just very, very small, small, small amounts, because of course I walked into this thinking it was going to be awful. So I was like, I don't want to make a lot of this. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> um, and it was fine, but yeah, just, just very small amounts, just kind of enough to have like a pint and then some for the cooking and then a little bit more, like just very, very small amounts. Yeah. And after mm -hmm. you did all that work too, you don't want to waste any in case it goes kind of a little bit bad quickly like right no, we'll have to save you know use and enjoy every drop of it so yeah like now if I brewed it again and other people wanted to try it I would make more because I know kind of what it's going to take well I mean like of course to some degree I can't tell you exactly what the natural bacteria and yeast in my house are going to do to it but I know likely it's not going to be super bad because the dates and the date syrup seem to balance out the tartness or the sourness you're going to get from the bacteria. So I wouldn't mind making more if, you know, people want to come over and try it, but I wouldn't, you know, with these experimental brews, I just don't make a lot of it because you just don't know what it's going to taste like. Yeah. But plus if you were cheating everyone, we'd have to throw you into the Liffey and that would be problematic. We don't want to do that. Yeah, no, I, I really, really would prefer not to go for a slim in the middle of fall. <laughs> no, no, chili. And then you may, you know, you may end up in a shopping trolley. No, no one, no one wants that. No, no, that does not sound like a good time. 
I don't know. So, Kendra, are you getting inspired as a home brewer thinking, ooh. You know what? I, it's never really it's never really appealed to me or occurred to me to try these historical recipes. But every time Christina does one, I'm like slightly more interested. And then I'm like, oh, now I, now I have to try it. At the very least, I feel like I need to taste them. And then maybe I'll get into the brewing of them. But like, interestingly, I saw that, look, I think a few people have made Sumerian ales or they've tried to recreate what they've seen. And Anchor Brewing was one of them as well. And they um, they also used about a third of the recipe was that that bapir. Um, I think they made a bread as opposed to a cracker. Um, but they also added date syrup and various things. So it's definitely it's, it's definitely all there, you know, I guess if, if we... Um, we had historical records that gave an exact recipe and process and method we could recreate it really well but it's it's interesting to me very very interesting yeah and, and there are certainly other I don't want to say modern because that's not quite the, quite the right word but there's certainly sort of other farmhouse styles especially from sort of Lithuania Poland that use this kind of bread first if you like approach where they're either tossing in stale bread because you don't want to waste anything right you're you're you know you're subsistence farming possibly or um or again, that's just kind of the traditional method where again, that that might be where your yeast lives, whether it's in the bread or in the bread dough or, or something like that. But I, I think, and, and some of them you can buy if, if you're in Dublin in your local Polish shops, there are a couple of the weirder Polish and Lithuanian beers that do have that kind of, uh, that, that kind of recipe and that kind of, um, I guess, brewing style, if, if you like. I've not actually tried any of them, but I, I'm always curious, like what, what are they like and how would they compare to something like this that you know, may have had kind of in broad strokes, the same kind of, um, I'll at least say steps, uh, if you like, obviously separated by thousands of years, but kind of similar, you know, a couple similarities there. So interesting. Yeah, I was, I was really fortunate to be asked um, to come on Bior Fest. They did an episode with a Lithuanian, with some Lithuanian brewers and they talked about Captain, Captinus and um, the, the, the beer, the beer that's made from bread and, and, and their brewing process. And it was fascinating when we will link that because I think the, the video is, is floating around still. And I highly recommend watching that because talking about the, the Lithuanian brewing processes and all the different things they do for farmhouse brewing was just, it was a wonderful, wonderful um, event. And I highly recommend watching it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's mm. the thing. So many of these things have analogs in different cultures, different time periods, because at the same time, at the end of the day, it's, it's all beer. It's, you know, it, it comes in different forms, different stripes, different colors, but you know, the, the basics are all still very, uh, you know, are, are fundamental. So, so many mm. commonalities, even if they're separated by all this time. Do you guys remember there's, there's a, a brewery in the UK called Toast Ale. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, oh, yeah. I mean, they use, they use leftover bread to supplement their, uh, their grain bowls, which I always just thought was such a clever idea, not knowing that it's, as ancient as beer itself, you know, this right. idea of using right. leftovers or, or baked, baked grains, you know, in, uh, I, in beer. I'd like that's to say so that cool. St. Mel's was trying something similar here as well. I don't know where they've ended up with that. That might be interesting to see if they continued that or if that was a one-off experiment, but I know they were looking into, um, I, I want to say on a, on a fairly large scale too, just seeing if that was a, a possibility of like um, partnering with like a commercial bakery to see what, what was sort of simpatico, if you like. Mm. But yeah, let's just think about that. All these things kind of go all the way back, if you like. But but we don't drink beer with straws now. We don't do that. That's, you know, it, but you have that in Sumeria. You have that actually across kind of the Mesopotamian cultures. Egypt, you know, you, you can get, um, again, you go to either like the Penn Museum or the British Museum. We're really probably all this stuff shouldn't be, but it is. But, you know, well, that's a different discussion. Talk for another day. But, you know, there are some wonderful little statuettes of people sitting around and, you know, sort of, it's almost like they've got a scorpion bowl and they're at a, you know, they're all like underage at a Chinese restaurant and they're all, you know, there with the straws drinking out of these sort of communal bowls. But, uh, you know, again, beer was always communal and, and this sort of, you know, sort of Near Eastern and sort of North African beer was, you know, a thing you drank with a straw. Just was it because it was still kind of grainy or was that just kind of, you know, the, the culture that grew around it? Probably a bit of both. When they found those, they found the filters that they would put at the end of yeah. the straws to filter it out, which tells us that even if they're filtering it, 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 at least some of the beer, not all of it, but at least some of it, even if it's filtered, it's probably not filtered that well. Yeah. Um, if you need another filter with, 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 with your straw. 
but it's a really, it's a really cool thing. And it's just all reminds me, I think it was Anthony Bourdain who said something about like, if multiple cultures are doing something that you should really pay attention to that because it's something to really look out for. And it probably makes something very delicious. And that's paraphrasing. I'm sure that's not even close to what he said, but I do remember watching an episode where he said something like that. Um, but yeah, this is this is just some, a process that just seems to pop up in many cultures sort of organically on its own. And I think that's just really, really interesting. Absolutely. I think yeah. maybe on that note, we'll we'll start to wrap up. Any final thoughts or questions on Sumerian ales? Christina, can I have an invite to the next time you make it, please? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you guys want me to make it again, I will absolutely make it and put it in bottles and we can do like a bottle share. Um, I'm trying to, I'm going to try to make an Egyptian one, which I feel like is just going to end up tasting like the Sumerian one part two electric boogaloo, <laughs> because honestly, like the process is very similar. So I'm really not seeing where I'm going to make much of a difference. So, you know, I will make that and, you know, people can try that and then I'll maybe go back to the Sumerian ale, but I have Marin actually sent me some meadow sweets. So I actually kind of oh, want to make wonderful. a Viking. I want to make a Viking ale actually. So that's really high on my list of things to do. Might in the need next to borrow while. some of that for for a mead but that that's a discussion for another day oh yeah nice for mead (laughs) yeah absolutely well wonderful well I think on that note I will say thank you again dear listeners or dear viewers if you're on the YouTubes thank you so much again continue to like subscribe at beer ladies or at beer ladies pod or at beer ladies podcast we're in all the places we really really appreciate all of your support and we'll see you again next week so thanks everyone Bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.